Hello, and welcome to the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast. In this episode, we'll be covering the Western Balkans, timed with the release of a New Lines report titled The Western Balkans 2023, An Assessment of Internal Challenges and External Threats. We'll be diving into the current state of the Western Balkans and potential problems lying ahead for U.S. policy in the region with the editor of the report, Tanya Domi, and one of its contributors, Kurt Bissiner. Our first guest is Tanya Domi. She is an adjunct assistant professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and is an affiliate faculty member of the Harriman Institute, where she has taught in the Balkan Studies program since 2008. Prior to her faculty appointment at Columbia, Tanya served in the U.S. Army for 15 years and later worked as a congressional aide and military policy advisor to the late Congressman Frank McCloskey. She also worked internationally for more than a decade on issues related to democratic transitional development, including media development, human rights, and human trafficking. She has expanded her research to include genocide, conflict-related sexual violence, and prevention of atrocity crimes. Tanya was seconded by the U.S. State Department to the OSCE mission of Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1996, where she served in various roles, including a spokesperson and counsel to former Ambassador Robert Frowick and Ambassador Robert Berry. Also joining us is one of the contributors to the report, Kurt Bassiner. He is the co-founder and senior associate of the Democratization Policy Council, a Berlin-based think tank established in 2005. He wrote for Just Security and Lebanon's Peace Cartel following the August 2020 port explosion. His Fulbright St. Andrews Award enabled his doctoral studies. Kurt is co-author and policy analyst for Sell Out, Tune Out, Get Out, or Freak Out, Understanding Corruption, State Corruption, State Capture, Radicalization, Pacification, Resilience, and Emigration in Bosnia and Herzegovina and North Macedonia, a collaborative project of DPC and Eurothink, supported by USAID. He is also co-author and research director for the Diplomats Handbook for Democracy Development Support, a project of the Community of Democracies. Prior to studying at St. Andrews, Kurt was strategist for then High Representative Patty Ashdown in Sarajevo. He was also political and campaign analyst for the OSCE ODIHR election observation mission in Ukraine in 2004 to 2005, and previously conducted analysis-based advocacy in Washington, D.C., for the Balkan Institute, the Balkan Action Council, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and the International Rescue Committee. Now that we've gotten through our guests' very extensive accomplishments, Tanya, I'd like to start with you. The Balkans have seemed to really disappear from the public eye and the public discourse since the late 90s. In this report, you and Kurt have really worked with a variety of experts on the Balkans to kind of explain why this is still a cause for concern for the U.S., the policy community, and worldwide. Can you go into detail about why the region has seemed to disappear from the information space? Thank you so much, Carolyn. I think to begin with, and Kurt points this out in his paper, that the U.S. essentially ceded policy to the European Union. And this happened really over a period of years, but most significantly after Obama took over because he asked the EU to lead on the Serbia-Kosovo dialogue, which former version of it began under Lady Ashdown, who actually was negotiating it. And it had been previously seated under Bush as well. So we turned it over. And our impulse to do that is unfortunate because the 
pattern and practice now shows that the EU's process of enlargement has really cast a pall over the region, particularly when President Macron of France stopped enlargement for North Macedonia and Albania and even potentially Bosnia in 2018 when he said, we're going to change the rules in the middle of the game. And it was a blow practically on the process itself. And I think it was a real blow psychologically to the countries that were hoping to join the EU and get on a fast track in that process. And then this is followed, unfortunately, by the war in Ukraine. And why is that so important? It's important because, interestingly enough, to those of us who are analysts on the region, there are many parallels between Ukraine and Bosnia and Herzegovina as an example. And also, when you start talking about partition and chopping up countries, there's some similarity as well with regard to Kosovo and Bosnia and the potential for a coercive peace in Ukraine. So when the Russians invaded Ukraine, they were also sending threatening messages within Bosnia itself. And the Russian ambassador to Bosnia actually threatened Bosnia's aspirations for NATO and said, if you join NATO, we will make an example of you. We will retaliate and we point to Ukraine as the example. Unfortunately, the West, you know, verbally does push back, but this is a precarious situation. This is fragile peace. Some people might call it hot peace. I'm sure Kurt will talk about that as well. You know, the war ended, but the war continues through, I call it, political partition of Bosnia. And in the case of Kosovo, the refusal of Serbia to recognize its independence and to pursue blocking it in every international body, it can obtain a blockage, and it does it in partnership with Russia. So Russia is an external threat, but it has internal surrogates that are also a threat to the very democracy or the fledgling democracy that currently exists on the ground. These are marginalized countries that have a great deal of corruption and very fragile in the way that democracies are carried out or not carried out. The unfortunate dynamic that we continue to see is that while Bosnia survived over 130,000 people killed and over two and a half million refugees and genocide itself, they have not recovered through the Dayton Peace Agreement, which was negotiated by the Americans. And actually, that peace treaty, while it did stop a horrible war, has ossified and stovepiped ethnicity over democratic practices. And many of us all agree that it's an impediment to the future of Bosnia's aspiring democracy. So I'll leave it there. So you call this a hot piece and that after the Obama administration pushed the responsibility of monitoring this onto Europe. And as you mentioned, the war in Ukraine kind of eclipsed a lot of international focus. But after some events in late May, we saw the international community be like, wait, things are still happening in the Balkans. We got to pay attention to the Balkans. 
after a very violent clash between ethnic Serbs and NATO peacekeepers occurred in northern Kosovo in Mitrovica, where Serbs attempted to block recently elected ethnically Albanian mayors from entering official buildings. 30 peacekeepers were injured. This was very, very, again, heavily publicized in a way that the Western Balkans have not been in a very long time. So, Kurt, going off of Tanya's answer, this wasn't surprising to you as someone who studies the region and is aware of all of the different factors that are causing this region to be no problem. What were the indicators that something like this was going to happen in the first place? Thank you, Carolyn. And just to add a few quick points, the U.S. ceding to the Europeans really began in like 2006. So that began under the George W. Bush administration. Uh, it had different manifestations, but the idea was that European Union enlargement was going to solve all this. So these countries joining the EU and NATO would impel progress in each of these countries. They would do the heavy lifting to meet the standards of those clubs they wanted to join. And I think the intervening 17 years, so this is a bipartisan failure, demonstrates that's not true. The EU has an imperative to prove itself to itself. And I think that's part of what set up the dynamic we see in Kosovo now. So between Kosovo and Serbia. Now you have an added geopolitical element, but the geopolitics were there before February 24th last year. There's been a fixation. One of the new flavors of the month is foreign authoritarian influence. It's the new, you know, combating violent extremism in terms of international donor fashions. But the real story there is why are these countries so vulnerable why are they so unstable after the West has been collectively has been the dominant player in this region since the end of the last Balkan War in 2001 in Macedonia that luckily didn't get nearly as bloody as the four previous, particularly the three previous. So your point about the clashes in northern Kosovo, the United States and the EU have sent the signal to President Alexander Vucic in Serbia that we really, really, really want to have a good relationship with him. We want to get him out of his game of geopolitical arbitrage, where he juggles the U.S., the EU, the Russians, the Chinese, the Turks, the Gulf states, and plays this non-aligned game while proclaiming he wants to join the EU. And we continue to want to believe that. And as we saw in Dayton, the easiest way to do that is to pressure the weaker party to relent on the terms of a deal. And that's what the Ohrid agreement alleged agreement, I would say, I put it in quotation marks, because I don't think anything's actually functionally agreed. And it's been demonstrated in the intervening months. So I wasn't surprised that there was some sort of clash. What surprised me was how weak the Western response was. And the, the onus was put on the authorities of Kosovo, tried to emplace these mayors in their offices. Now, you could argue the wisdom of that decision or not, but there's no ambiguity about who attacked the K-4 NATO troops. And they were Serbs. And it looked like an organized attack, if you watch the video. So I don't think this was just sort of simply a local pickup team of people who were ticked off. They had weapons. They were coordinated. So I think it's an illustration of a policy that's long gone awry. It's encouraged the worst in irredentist national agendas, not only from Serbia, which has the biggest one, toward not just Kosovo, but Bosnia and also Montenegro. This is a parallel with the Russians. They, the, the Serbian de facto project is Serbsky Svet, Serbian world, which is exactly translation of Ruski Mir, Russian world. Same concept, wherever Serbs live, wherever Russians live, we have an interest and we have a right to involve ourselves. 
I have only seen one instance of a Western diplomat even using the term, let alone pushing back on it and saying, this is verboten and we will protect the sovereignty of these countries. So it's a very long-winded answer, and I'm sorry, but that incident was of a piece of the policies that had led up to that point, and I suspect it's encouraged worse going forward. Absolutely. And you mentioned that this national agenda is coming way in multiple of these countries, and I'd like to expand on that. A theme throughout multiple of the papers in this report is this rise of nationalism that's happening in the Western Balkans countries. As Kurt mentioned, not just in one country, but in Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo, Montenegro, Serbia. So Tanya, I'm wondering if you could go into a little bit of detail about how this is manifesting in the different countries, kind of areas where the themes compare, where they contrast, and what of those is keeping you up at night? Well, I mean, far-right activity is taking place all over the globe. So the Balkans is no exception to this rule at this time. As a matter of fact, what was fascinating about the New Zealand killings was that the assassin was actually inspired by Serbian radical nationalism and was listening to Serbian music in the car that he was driving away from the mosque. And actually, a reporter from the region was at the New York Times at that time, and she indicated to me that she had told the editors of the New York Times that he was inspired by this music And there's some connection to this Serb nationalism, which you can obtain, you know, on YouTube or wherever. But they declined to include that in the story, which she really regretted. But that's an example of how far reaching this nationalism is and how it can be communicated. And as Kurt said, the relationship with Russia is that as an example of their nationalism, instrumentalizing religion in Montenegro, as an example, using it to push Serbian and Russian dominance into that society. And what's interesting about Montenegro, where I actually have worked and lived in before, It was very non-ethnic identified. When you spoke to people in Montenegro, I was so used to this in Bosnia. I would say, well, are you Serb or what's your ethnicity? And they go, oh, I'm Montenegrin. They wouldn't even identify by ethnicity. But that has unfortunately been changed through a government that had been elected in the last several years that was pro-Russian. And then this activity being directed from Belgrade in partnership with the Russians on instrumentalizing the church into this discourse. And not only that, a lot of people may not even know there was an attempt, a coup d'etat failed attempt to overthrow the Montenegrin government by Russians with Serbs in October 2016 right before our election in the United States. It failed, but people were arrested, and Belgrade did cooperate to some extent on the arrest. But also, if you look at the right wing in Bosnia, I mean, it has really, I think, illustrated by Milorad Dodik, the president of the Republika Srpska, who burns the tarmac down flying to Moscow, 
and he is a surrogate for the Russians. He's received honors from Putin, and I think he may go to Moscow even more than Alexander Vucic, president of Serbia. He models a ideology of secession. We're going to secede from Bosnia. He has now been charged for the first time for his really violations of the Dayton Peace Accords to maintain peace and security. He has repeatedly violated, but now has been charged and prosecutors have filed charges against him. It'll be really interesting to see what happens in this situation, but he has been a repeated actor calling for secession within Bosnia and very, very unstable. In terms of right-wing politics in Serbia itself, the right wing, Vucic's right wing is, is to his right. It's very extreme. It's modeled by people from Daveri and these really radical groups. I would just call them full-on nihilists. And also been involved in some of the demonstrations that have been taking place there. It's a mixed bag. There's been demonstrations ongoing in Serbia for quite a long time, and it's gotten very little attention from the West in terms of media reporting. His right wing is extreme. Also, Russia also has a role in the media discourse in Serbia and in the RS in Bosnia. And this rhetoric is, of course, it's about Slavic Brotherhood and about Putin is the strong man and the embrace of the strong man and Russian ideology. So Russia doesn't need to send troops or planes or to the region. They already have their surrogates on the ground and they have their media outlets splattered around the region. So that's another example. And then you have the Croats, who are EU members in Zagreb, using EU platform to push what I would call nationalistic rhetoric and politics. This is quite unfortunate, and it's very corrosive in their partnership through the HDZ, which is the dominant party in Croatia, with their partners in Bosnia. So this has got a corrosive effect. And as a matter of fact, the Croatians have also expressed and joined in sympathy and solidarity with Putin. And just like about a year ago, Mr. Dodik and a person by the name of Dragon Chovic, who's a leader of the HDZ in Bosnia, went to Jerusalem and talked to the Israeli government and encouraged them to get involved in an electoral law change in Bosnia. And this was done by two nationalists, Dragon Chovic, Milorad Dodik, without question, had a role in the Israelis jumping into domestic dialogue, which was very unfortunate. And right-wing Israelis worked with Milorad Dodik on a commission that was set up to erase the genocide that took place in Srebrenica, to deny that genocide, and that actually has also taken place. So you have right-wing Israelis who participated in this basically fake commission. So what you see, which is how it's going on all over the world, is the bad guys are all coming together in support of each other, and the Balkans are no exception.
Well, you've provided a very harrowing outlook on the Balkans, specifically the right-wing nationalism, as you said, that is eclipsing a lot of the world right now, and the Balkans are not being spared. Now that we've kind of taken a look at the problems that the Balkans are facing, I want to move to the international response, particularly of that of the U.S. So, Kurt, many experts, including yourself, were kind of looking towards the Biden administration coming into power as a chance to restore U.S. international engagement after the Trump administration. Regarding all of these issues that you and Tanya have both gone into, what were your biggest hopes for what the Biden administration was going to do to address these issues while in office? How long was your period of hope for the Biden administration before that outlook changed? And I'm specifically wondering about how you've seen the Biden administration live up to these U.S. values it totes as trying to represent in its foreign policy, and if you've seen a real change in this regard from what the Trump administration did in office with the Balkans. Well, I mean, I don't think I was Pollyanna-ish about my hopes. We hoped we'd have an opportunity with the incoming Biden administration first to reset itself to what had been industry standard bipartisan policy red lines toward the Western Balkans in Europe, which the Trump administration deviated from. But beyond that, also call for a policy review with its European, Canadian, you know, all our allies dealing with this region as to what did we get wrong? Why are we on the back foot when we are relatively strong in this region? We actually have values that resonate with the general population what our geopolitical adversaries are trying to sell. And I want to underscore the main problem isn't the external actors. The main problem is the vacuum that was allowed to predominate in the region, and that's on us. These political actors in the region, and it's not societal, anthropomorphic, they're taking the shape of their containers. And I think what we found out, just to be clear, you know, I joked that Trump was our first Balkan president. It wasn't a joke. He operated according to a lot of the same precepts. A mutual friend of Tanya's and mine, you know, was interviewed in The Atlantic in the same article with George Packer wrote, Aida Cherkes, the journalist, who had the same observation, was terrified because this is a recognizable type. So societies can go backwards. In fact, we have not learned from the Balkans. It's not because the Balkans are a particularly benighted place. They had a very rough history because political entrepreneurs took advantage of a situation and they managed to optimize it. And now they're optimizing it with our help. So the second part of your question, my hope evaporated sometime between the spring and the summer of 2021. So pretty soon. The last bit of it kind of went poof with the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. I honestly think that that is a truer representation of the reflexes of the Biden administration's foreign policy than anything that's come subsequent. You know, I don't think we're doing enough to help the Ukrainians by any means, but, you know, we have been a leader. Britain has probably led the pack, but we have a lot more to contribute. But the overarching point about the values is this was revealed in Summit for Democracy first of which was the end of December 2021, and then the next one was a few months ago in March. And I think the emphasis has been on geopolitical alignment. First of all, among democracies, against geopolitical adversaries, and then trying to get others to align with us. Now, that's a legitimate aim, but it's very different 
than advocating democratic principles and standards and rule of law and transparency and democracy and everything that we think of as a package deal. And on the road with my colleague Valerie Perry earlier this year, just before the Summit for Democracy, the second one, we wanted to test the temperature of what civil society writ large, small NGOs, independent journalists, academics, activists, and despite you know, differentiation among them, they were all crystal clear that you're working against us. I'll quote one from Southern Serbia who said, I can't work for the OSCE because then I'd be working for Vucic. That's how bad our star has fallen. And specifically from vantage point Sarajevo and Bosnia, we have really lit up a lot of the credibility that we managed to maintain via the Europeans. We're fast catching up to the Europeans' lack of credibility as a policy actor in the region, not as a desirable addresser or deep pockets donor, which it still has. But now people are doing that individually and leaving as a result of the indignities that people suffer region-wide. Bosnia is first in line. but So the Biden administration had a lot of continuity with the transactionalism of the Trump administration. The one thing they did retreat from, to their credit, was you know the idea of this land swap partition to Kosovo. Good, but they've leaned in definitely to squeeze the Kosovo government to make concessions to Serbia and not ask Serbia to recognize Kosovo, which was the whole point of the dialogue. That was the whole point. And Chancellor Merkel actually made the dialogue happen by telling Vucic's predecessor, his president, Boris Tadic, you know, until you recognize where your southern border is you're not going to get into the EU. And Chancellor Schultz did effectively repeat that on his Balkan tour, but he since retreated from it. So the Biden policy, I would say, and we saw this in Afghanistan, I'd characterize it as amoral managerialism with a PR front of values, which I don't think Biden himself is insincere about for Americans and established democracies, but it's not a priority to help people who don't yet have that. So it's a different brand of America first, unfortunately. And you see that in our relationship with the authorities in Tunisia, which the Europeans have done even worse. Our approaches to migration, you know, fill in the blank across the panoply of issues. And the Western Balkans fits in that picture. But the biggest, most damning thing, and I'll stop here, is the West if it's united, and it became a lot more united after February 24th last year than it has been in a very, very long time. If the West's united and potentially help facilitate good things happening, if there's a constituency for them, and there is, and I'm a frustrated, angry optimist about the future of this place, I'm actually more confident that a modus vivendi among Bosnians of all self-descriptions can be found than I am among Americans, much more, which sounds insane to most of your listeners, but I'm convinced that's true. The frustrating part is we're not doing anything to allow that to be realized. And that is where the policy failure, deterrence failure, and moral culpability is. I was just going to add, I mean, I think Kurt's absolutely spot on. Every time we embrace Alexander Vucic, while we're embracing him, we're criticizing Kurti, the prime minister of Kosovo, over Mitrovica and his escort of mayors to their offices, every time we do that, we undercut civil society, just as Kurt said. We are hurting those actors 
and the activists on the ground, they really believe in embracing democracy. And we see that throughout the region. So every time we do this, we're sending a signal that we're not really the good guys anymore. And I believe we've lost the faith and the hope of many Bosnians. And I think we should keep our eyes on Kosovo because what's interesting, the Kosovars, they're probably the most supportive of the United States in the region. And that support is gone. There is a lot of fear of what the United States might do next or not by omission. So I just want to affirm Kurt on that. Absolutely. And to follow up on that, Kurt, in your part of the report, you mentioned the phrase that the U.S. needs to reset the region, quote. And so I'm wondering if you could go into a little bit about what you see as a potential way forward for this. You and Tanya have both outlined very honestly failures of multiple U.S. administrations in this capacity and kind of stepping up, leading, really actually supporting the values that it says it supports. And so I'm wondering what you see as kind of the way forward and the key to resetting the region, as you said. We definitely said the policy toward the region needs to be reset and recalibrated. And the region, the region, we also have to look at the limits of our abilities. We have enormous in potential influence, particularly bad actors, and to encourage good actors consistent with our values. So we can't rearrange everything in the region. We're not omnipotent or either. I think we need to recognize from first principles, we're a long way away from that. And I'd say the optimism that attended the Thessaloniki Declaration in 2003, 20 years ago, saying there was an open door to the European Union, all that's gone everywhere. And that's a direct result, not just of American policy, but of Western policy. So what could be done to reset the region? We first have to admit what we got wrong and basically say, we trusted your leaders. We thought your leaders were actually representative, wanted to do the right thing for you guys. By and large, with a few exceptions, perhaps, they've demonstrated they don't really want to do that. They want to continue to extract from us. They don't want to actually enter the EU unless they can enter the EU without paying the price, which is where the real value. There's a debate on, and I think this is quite often a problem in, in this administration, Part of the meta policy is if you want to be really amoral about it, they're trying to cauterize open issues in the region to pacify it. And then they want to say, okay, EU, you adopt these feral children as is. Over to you. As one official put it to me two years ago, effectively, we want to show the EU enlargement's not, not so scary. And that just struck me as so tone deaf and out of touch with both Europeans are allies, but also the ground reality. These countries as is have a snowball's chance in hell of making it through the accession process because a number of countries in the EU have referenda that they have to have. So they're gonna have to pay the freight to do it. And I think that that's, which is not to say that we can't ensure security, which we used to do, which we're not doing. And particularly in Bosnia, I'd say we're in a deterrence failure where things could go catastrophically wrong. They haven't yet. But if you reassure people, you can actually take the toys away from some of the most malevolent actors, particularly Milorad Dodik, but not only him. Everybody plays the same game. It's not a morality tale. 
in the practice of politics. It's for-profit politics. That's why I call it a peace cartel. They threaten to take the peace away at will. So pay us. Give us indulgences, not only in terms of resources, but legitimize us and don't question our right to control things. So that's region-wide. I think there has to be a bit of humility, an admission, you know, we thought we'd be a lot further along. It's not that the goals were wrong, but the way we went about trying to reach the goals, our partnership, and that's a term that EU uses a lot, needs to be with the whole societies, not just with elites, not just with the people in power. And that's not the way the EU has been built to work in itself. And, and it's become more of an elite project. But that just, it's an autoimmune disorder. That just makes everything worse. And that goes everywhere where you have that sort of keep the decisions from the people because they might get it wrong mentality. It's dangerous. So I think that's really it. It's not a super heavy lift at the commanding heights of power in the Biden administration or any others. There's no political price that I can think of that would need to be paid. Bureaucratically, though, nobody's going to advise it from within the bureaucracy because nobody wants to tell their boss, hey, you remember that thing that you told me? Keep a handle on it. You need to call your counterparts and deal with it. I'm not saying everything would be solved. The incentive structure would change radically. But people would need to see we were serious. And that's what my colleagues and I and, and others have been advocating that's what I tried to convey in peace on the American policy side of this whole mosaic, because we can act as a single actor. We could set the tone. We can't dictate to the Europeans what their policy should be, but we could strongly encourage them. And they know their policy is failing, too. They're just faking it, hoping it doesn't explode. And from every bureaucrat who's been left on the ground to deal with this, ambassadors, heads of delegation, they all have that incentive structure because nobody wants to say, hey, the emperor has no clothes. That's our biggest problem. Absolutely, Kurt. You've outlined steps that the U.S. can take, as you mentioned, that don't have huge political costs or anything like that. But I mean, admitting failure on the U.S. part, which has historically been a problem for the U.S. to do in a variety of landscapes. And I want to shift now to a topic that may end the podcast on a darker note, which is the upcoming U.S. elections next year. This is something that a lot of people are beginning to talk about, where there's a potential that the Biden administration will get another term, or potentially a Trump administration or even another Republican candidate will become president of the United States. And so I'm wondering, Tanya, in your outlook, based on everything that you and Kurt have outlined in this podcast, what do you see as next, based on any of those three scenarios that I've outlined? What do you see as affecting the region? And do you see a potential for this situation and all of the factors you guys have outlined to be exacerbated? Well, even with a new Biden administration, they're basically, as Kurt said, they're managing. There's no initiative here to change the dynamic. There's no initiative. What we're, many of us are very concerned about is a deterrent in Bosnia to get a reinforced NATO brigade into Bosnia, about 5,000 soldiers. An infantry brigade is really necessary because the U-4 presence is about roughly 1,500 soldiers lightly armed. There's nothing there to defend them. Now, to NATO's credit, they've been doing exercises in Bosnia's 
Army's been participating, but we've all been very concerned. And I do contend that the reason Vucic doesn't cross the line into Kosovo is because of Camp Bondsteeld and the NATO presence that remains in Kosovo. So that issue about basic security on the ground, I don't care if it's Biden or if it's another another Trump administration, that remains a concern. And as Kurt pointed out, Trump came up with swapping land. And when you start moving borders and lines, that's a disastrous situation waiting to explode. Because if there's moving of the lines around Kosovo, then there's also the dynamic that a lot of us are concerned about, that that's when Dodik would move on secession. So those things remain in play. Those things remain a concern. And it wouldn't make any difference who becomes president. As Kurt said, it has been a bipartisan effort. There are Republicans and Democrats that do continue to work together on Bosnian policy. But a lot of the elected officials on Capitol Hill right now, they're not opposed to it. People in the Democratic Party. And so part of the effort of the New Lines Institute is that we're going to take the writings and advocacy of people like Kurt and our other colleagues that will be able to talk to the Hill and in the UK Parliament and in the EU Parliament to persuade them that the Balkans deserve our attention and we cannot take our eye off the ball, particularly on what the outcome in Ukraine may or may not be. If Russia wins that war, all bets are off. Absolutely. I encourage all of our listeners to read and share this report when it comes out. It will be very instrumental, as Tanya mentioned, to ensuring that policymakers abroad pay a lot of attention to the Balkans and that this region gets the attention it deserves from the next administration, whoever it may be. I'd like to thank Kurt and Tanya for coming on the podcast today. This was a wonderful conversation. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Contours. You can make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org. All the best.